Welcome to Forecasting Impact, a podcast brought to you by the International Institute of Forecasters. This show brings together experts from academia and industry to discuss a wide range of subjects on forecasting science and practice in business, society, economy, healthcare, and education. Thank you for choosing to spend some time with us today. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Forecasting Impact. This is Maddie, your host, and we have Ellen today. Hi, Maddie. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much. And for those Hi. that don't know me, I'm Ellen Bunnell. I'm on the Forecast Advisory Board for Foresight, the Applied Journal of Forecasting for the International Institute of Forecasting. Amazing. So today we have a topic on forecasting software, a very popular topic, and we have three amazing guests coming to us from US, Mexico, and Australia. I'll introduce them in a minute. But before, I'll just give you some idea about you know, the latest things that we have on forecasting softwares. So two of the open source programming languages, as you probably know, Python and R, they're the most popular open source programming languages for forecasting. And they have both, you know, a lot of packages and libraries available for time series analysis and forecasting. So some statistics as of March 2023, R is ranked 16th in TOB index, which is which measures the popularity of programming languages. But that is general thing. In when it comes to forecasting, definitely number one or two. And we can have arguments on that. And according to our consortium, there are currently more than 2 million developers of R around the world. Developers have written and op- have written open source programs, more than, more than 13,000 actually open source packages and libraries via CRAN. R has its own journal, conference, and active community around the world. If you search a little bit, you can find about it. Python is the other popular open source programming languages, which is also general purpose. And it has a great community in forecasting. It has been picking up more recently also on the machine learning side. It is ranked first popular programming languages as of, as of now that we are talking March 2023. But in, when it comes to forecasting, again, it is in competition with R. So we can have arguments on that. R, Python has more than 50 million active users and 137,000 libraries. And when it comes to commercial softwares for forecasting, the, according to a report by Market Research Future, the global demand for forecasting software is expected to grow significantly. They're extremely powerful for industries, for SMEs and large institutions. And there is continuing to grow with 10% annual growth rate. It is estimated to have date that they, it, there is a market of roughly $5 billion. And that's the statistics for 2020 for commercial softwares. Factors such as increasing need for accurate forecasting, disruptions in supply chain, data availability, and the growing popularity of cloud-based solutions, and the rising adoption of AI and ML for forecasting has been some, they've been some of the factors uh, contributing to the growth of commercial software significantly during the last few years. So this is a quick introduction of our forecasting softwares, and I'm looking forward to our conversations. Now, first, I want to introduce our guests quickly, and then we get into the conversation, actual conversations that we have. Professor Rob Heintman, we have had him once on the podcast, the first episode, and this is the second time that we have um, Rob, which is fantastic. Professor Rob Heinemann is a well-known and famous professor of statistics in the Department of Econometrics and Business Statistics at Monash University. From 2005 to 2018, 
He was editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Forecasting and director of the International Institute of Forecasters. Rob is the author of over 200 research papers and five books in statistical science. He's an elected fellow of, the, of both the Australian Academy of Science and the Academy of Social Sciences in Australia. In 2007, he received the Moran Medal from the Australian Academy of Science for his contribution to statistical research, especially in the area of statistical forecasting. In 2021, he received the Pittman Medal for from the Statistical Society of Australia. For over 30 years, Rob has maintained an active consulting practice, assisting hundreds of companies and organizations around the world. He has won awards for his research, teaching, consulting, and graduate supervision. It's great to have you, Rob, here. Thanks, Marty. It's nice to be back on the podcast. Yeah, great to have you. Our second guest, well, uh, there is no order, but I'm just introducing uh, Federico Garza, Ramirez Fifth, uh, with the pronoun they, them, is a highly experienced ML engineer with a background in economics and mathematics. Eddie is a, is a CTO and co-founder of Nixlot, with over a decade of experience deploying ML models in production for large financial institutions. Eddie has a proven track record of delivering end-to-end products. They is passionate about creating usable, scalable, and open-source ML products, and is a co-mentor of several popular Python and libraries and R libraries. Fedi's expertise is in the field. Fedi's expertise in the field has also earned them recognition as a speaker at multiple PyCons and author of peer-reviewed papers solidifying their status as a leading expert in time series analysis. Great to have you here, Fedi, today. Hey, Mary. Thank you very much for for having me. Pleasure having you. Last but certainly not the least, Eric Stelwagen is the CEO and co-founder of Business Forecast System. Uh, it's a it's a it's a market leading firm focused on providing software solutions and education to business forecasters. He's the co-author of the Forecast for Software product line which is currently in use at more than 12,000 companies worldwide. He consults widely in the area of practical business forecasting and has worked with many leading firms, including Coca-Cola, Mondelez, Merck, Nabisco, Owners Corning, and Verizon. He has also served on the board of directors of the International Institute of Forecasters and serves on the Practitioner's Advisory Board of Foresight, the International Journal of Applied Forecasting. It's great to have you, Eric. Yeah, well, thanks. I'm I'm happy to be here and pleased to be invited. Yeah, my pleasure. Okay, so that was a roughly long introduction that we had, but let's kick off our conversation going on. So I'm going to start off our conversation, first of all, by getting to know every each of you, how you got started in software development in your career. You can kick off by Rob. Sure. So I, I started writing my own functions when I was doing a lot of consulting and I was you know, consulting to companies and I needed to develop some forecasting tools to solve the problems. And back in, this was back in the 1990s, and I was writing it in the S language, which was a precursor to the R language. And uh, yeah, my, my my functions were pretty useful for my use. So I thought they might be useful to other people. And I put them on my website and noticed that there was quite a few downloads. And then when R came out, I turned them into an R package and put that on my website and that got downloads. And Sort of slowly it took off and that all turned eventually into the forecast package, which is probably the best known software that I've written. And it's still, it's very widely used these days. There's about 3 million downloads a year at the moment. So that's a lot of people using it. Rob, when you started out, were you doing custom modeling or did you just need a method for some production forecasting? A little bit of both. So I was 
doing some of my own models. So back in the late 90s, we were developing the state-based approach to exponential smoothing. And I'd used that in a couple of consulting projects before we ever wrote any papers about it. And I found it worked incredibly well. So then we wrote papers and put out the software. But other things, I was just coding up other people's software that I didn't have a convenient Mm -hmm. function available. So I I wrote it up and they both types of functions ended up in the forecast package. Some of it's my work, some of it's my code of other people's work. Great, thanks. How about you, Fevi? How how did you start in uh, software and pipe and uh, forecasting? So so basically, I I started programming these forecasting pipelines for for a data science consulting firm specialized in in demand planning. And at that time, we we used some Python and also some R packages, including the the forecast package of, of of Professor Heinemann. And uh, we used the, the Python libraries available at, at the moment, particularly stats models, profit, and PM Darima. So, so we noticed a really great opportunity in, in the field because we realized that the model implementations in, in most of the cases did not, did not, did not scale well, which was a big issue for us because we, we had to forecast thousands of time series. So, so it was, it was really, really challenging for us in the in the python ecosystem so we started mm-hmm. building some some tools around it to to try to solve the the the, the problem and then we we start to to, to implement some some uh, some models, for example, Arima EDS, based on the on the work of, of Professor Heinemann, and uh, also we start to to build an entire ecosystem for for Python, not just uh, statistical models, but also machine learning models and deep learning models. So the 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 main the main purpose of of building a new ecosystem for 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 Python around time series forecasting is to give the opportunity to users to have a, a solution that is usable and scalable. So that's that's the main idea behind that. Beautiful. And Eric, you have been in this domain for a long time. I would love to hear your story, how you started in this path. Yeah, I have been, I have been doing forecasting for a long time. That's true. Back in the mid-80s, I was working at a, a consulting engineering firm in Cambridge, Mass., and we had a contract with something called the Electric Research Institute and a study to basically come up with ways of forecasting demand for electric power. And so the engineering firm was doing state-based models and engineering approaches. And a couple of professors at UCSD, Rob Engel, Clive Granger, among them, were doing econometric models for the project. And we basically found some very effective load forecasting approaches, but had sort of the unfortunate situation where utility companies couldn't use them because software didn't exist to do these kinds of models. And they were sort of research programs that we put together. And actually, Mark Watson was involved on the UCSD side. He was putting together models. And we guided that project to become a software package that that EPRI could distribute to its member utilities and that my engineering firm, Scientific Systems, could sell to the world at large. And so that that package was called Forecast Master. 
Um, it was a pretty popular package, but it was designed really for analysts and statisticians. And it was what we found as we started to sell it outside of the electric power industry is that general pe business people were really struggling with how to apply the methods and build the models. And that was sort of the motivation for Forecast Pro, which was really designed for a general business audience that's comfortable with numbers and spreadsheets, but that are not analysts or statisticians or econometricians. So uh, my partner, Bob Goodrich, partner in crime, you know, at Scientific mm. Systems, we left that company and started Business Forecast Systems and developed the Forecast Pro product, which was sort of squarely aimed at business-oriented forecasting. Yeah. So all three of you have a commonality of it was necessity was the mother of your invention. You had clients that you just needed more bigger, better, robuster kind of thing. And for those of us that do forecasting, you know, software always leads the way. You know, we, we can do nothing without these software packages. So I'm interested in how you stay on top of, like, are, are you trying to continually get better? Or are you still focused on the specific needs of customers? Well, from, Anybody? from my point of view, I was never really trying to develop software for customers so much as I wanted a vehicle to put my own functions in, and I thought other people might find them useful. So I, I tend to write software now where I try to implement methods that I've developed and I want a way to help other people use them, or I want to use it for teaching and I'm trying to teach students good practices. So we designed the software around trying to sort of emphasize what's a good practice. So yeah, I, I've much less of a customer focus than a commercial company would have. It's more about providing a vehicle that that helps me to do teaching and, and research effectively. Uh, yep. Uh, yeah. So I as as Rob foreshadowed, commercial software is a little little different in that it's very much customer driven. So that as our software has evolved, it's always been in response to customer needs. That's been true both on the methodology side, where you know we were thrown up against different types of data that require different types of methodology, as well as really the challenge of building a corporate forecasting process, which is a lot more encompassing than just generating a forecast. So that I would say the vast majority of the changes over the years to, to Forecast Pro have definitely been customer driven. Yeah. From, from my side, I, I would say that that one of the of the uh, interesting things about our work is that we are not just only consumer driven, but also community driven. We have found that the, the Python community, the open source community, it's really eager to collaborate in creating new tools, in particular for, for time series forecasting. And, and we want to, to, to be able to, to provide a set of really good, really good tools for, for, for such tasks. And, and, and in particular, we, we want to, to, to improve uh, the efficiency, the computational efficiency of our implementations. And also we want to provide a, a state of the art uh, models and, and tools. In fact, we, we, we are a really a team which Part of, of, of our team is entirely dedicated to, to, to some kind of, of research to provide some, some, some value through, through that and make available that, that, that research to the, to the, to the public. Yeah. Is the Python community mostly academia? Is it developers for specific 
organizations? Is it commercial developers? What does that community look like? I would say that there there is a lot of, of diversity in the in the ecosystem, and that's what excites excites me the the, the most because we have, uh, or, or you can you can talk with people with different backgrounds, the people interested in 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 productize the, the open source software in order for them to to pro, to provide value to to their companies, but also you have a lot of of developers which want this uh, this this software to solve their day-to-day problems in, in particular and in, in, in forecasting. So mm-hmm. it's really it's really diverse and, and it's really exciting to be able to collaborate with 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 uh, people with different backgrounds. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Beautiful. You know, you as you mentioned, there are different reasons why you have developed the software, whether commercial or for teaching or community purposes. Um, I'm keen to know from your view, what are the things that you think is lacking and maybe you know community and people need to pay a little bit more attention in that sense there has been a lot of developments definitely over the last years maybe it is growing more exponentially but what are the things in your view that we need to more focus on can start by yeah so i can answer that by talking about how my own packages have developed so my, the original one, which is still the best known one, is the forecast package. And it was really designed for annual, quarterly, and monthly data. The data objects that it uses work best with those sort of time frequencies. And it was designed for one time series at a time, just fitting individual models to single series. But over, the t- over time, more and more data is collected at a higher frequency. And so typical, typically these days, you want to be fitting models to thousands or even millions of series and the data is often at daily or sub-daily level and the forecast package really didn't cope with that very well we tried to sort of patch it a little bit to, but it wasn't really designed for purpose and so we ended up developing a new suite of packages uh, specifically to handle large collections of time series of any time frequency and with a focus on probabilistic forecasting rather than point forecasting. And so the new packages, which is you know, the Tibble package for handling the time series structure, the Feasts package for doing some analysis and the Fable package for handling the forecasting side of it, designed with those sort of three things in mind. And I think that sort of those goals are going to be typical, those sort of developments are going to be typical in other software as well. Higher frequency, larger collections of data, and thinking about probabilistic forecasting rather than point forecasting. Is that the same trend, Eric, in commercial softwares moving to more, you know, to to softwares that that they can support a high frequency data? I would say the commercial market is sort of segmented. And there's there are applications for things like supply chain execution and and such, where yeah, you're dealing with high volumes of data. Automation becomes very important. You know, if I'm a if I'm a demand planner who's forecasting twenty thousand different stock keeping units every week, you know, that's a pretty tall order. And obviously, automation becomes comes very important. But Commercial forecasting is pretty wide, and what I've found sort of interesting is more and more highly specialized forecasting systems that leverage really domain knowledge about what they're forecasting. So, you know, if you look at a very specific application, I know, for example, Ellen has, has been involved in this kind of work in the past with some of these convenience restaurants and knowing, you know, where the restaurant is located, knowing if it 
in an office park versus Disneyland, you know, that, that it'll have different characteristics and really customizing solutions that, that leverage that kind of knowledge. If you're working in a pharmaceutical company, you know, certain changes in demand are recognizable for what's occurring, whereas generically, when those change occurs, you can't really ascribe a cause to it if you're just looking at a stream of numbers. So one of the trends I am seeing is that you're getting some pretty specialized forecasting applications. And I think one of the the ways that those are becoming more accurate is by by specializing and by embedding really knowledge of what it's being used for as opposed to just it's a time series let's forecast a stream of numbers interesting point so that means basically what well, what is the decisions that we're going to make based on this forecast in a in a certain setting and based on what we have down in downstream operations we should include some information in the forecasting software and specialize it to be able to do a good job in, in the decision. Is that is that what the trend is? Yeah. Yeah. I'll yeah. give you an example that that's pretty frequent and it's kind of funny. I, I I get presented with this constantly. Okay. Which is, you know, you have a time series and it has what I call an end condition. Something unusual happens in the last period or two of the data. So let's say an unexpected upward spike. Okay, so you've got a pretty well-behaved time series, and the last value takes a jump. And, you know, you, you run it through something that's working with just a stream of numbers, and it will usually moderate that jump. Okay, so you're going to get something that's not at the base level prior to the jump, but you're also not going to jump all the way to the top. That's because you don't know what happened, and that's a reasonable strategy if you're dealing with a stream of numbers. It's not a reasonable strategy if you know what's going on. And so you, what, what happens is the first customer calls and says, you know, clearly this was an anomaly and the forecast is much too high and it should be back at that base level. And then the second customer calls and they're also upset and they say, you know, clearly that is a level shift and the forecast is much too low. And the interesting thing is they could have exactly the same time series and they're both right it's not a good forecaster for forecaster A. It's not a good forecast for forecaster B. And the, the key there is that they know it through domain knowledge, not from the stream of numbers. And so you get these systems that recognize, you know, that in this situation, a plunge might be a stock out. And that's probably followed by elevated demand as you, you have the ability to ship in the following period where another one might recognize it in a totally different way. So this, this concept of really understanding, having the software understand what it's being applied to, and to start to have sort of more rule-based approaches that leverage people's knowledge of what they're forecasting and what these demand patterns are, is kind of an exciting area for you know future development of commercial software. So again, I, that it's it's pretty good stuff, and it can can really improve one's one's forecasts. All right, so here's a problem that I think all three of you could address. Let's say we've just been through a pandemic for three years, and all of our data is impacted by screwed up demand and screwed up supply. And the idea would be for the software to figure out 
what causality, seasonality, et cetera, we can still use, and when do we have to start over again, as if we had a new data stream. Are any of you positioned to handle that? How do you plan to build in that sort of thing? It's going to be our new normal to need it. Anybody? Well, that's a, that's a tough question, Alan. And <laughs> when people are developing models to try to deal with sort of major disruptions like we've had over the last three years. So I think it's more of a modeling question than a software question. You know, what models are around that will help you deal with you know, extremely disruptive events. And, and you, I mean, you can do it. Whether the forecasts are any good coming out of those models remains to be seen. But certainly the, the software I develop does include models that have highly adaptive seasonality when it changes rapidly or where you have level shifts or you have other sort of disruptive things going on. So it's a matter of building the model that tries to describe what's happened, I think. Okay. Anyone else? Eric? Yeah, I think I would echo that. You know, there's there's a lot of tendency when you've got disruptive periods and, and periods of high variance to sort of say, you know, can we rewrite that history? Can we get to something that what it what would it have been if it hadn't occurred and then forecast based on that sort of baseline? And I think that's that's a mistake. I mean, you you want to be modeling what happened. And in periods like like COVID. You know, that's not the easiest thing to do. And the other thing that we had a lot of is that COVID hit different industries very differently. And so, you know, and as I liked your technical term of screwed up, okay, but it did screw <laughs> up. It screwed up a lot of industries. And I think one thing that I've, I've sort of witnessed is you, everyone sort of has to say, what are the specifics of how it hit our industry? And therefore, what approaches can we use? And again, it's it's sort of the the knowledge of the business becomes important. And in times of high uncertainty, it can become more important than the statistics of a time series. Right. I would say also that it is a, a really difficult difficult problem from the software perspective. I think that we also have a, a port an opportunity area because uh, there there is no already tools to embed the models or to embed the, the, the software with domain knowledge. That's one of the things I, I think that we, we want to explore in the in the future. And that would be really helpful to, to solve that that kind of problems when you have a, a drift change in the in the in the in the time series. But but I agree it's a it's a really difficult difficult problem. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, embedding information, the domain information definitely is an interesting one. It's an also there is an active research going on in this domain as well, whether we can integrate both and not only get, you know, you need to know the context, get information from what's going on in real world and then put them into the model. But then also one step after that is, okay, so we have got this model now is representing what is going on in the real. Now the question is, can, how, how can we interpret those forecasts and use them for making some decisions in real world that actually can help us for improving the performance or whatever purposes that we have? How do you think about integrating the decisions into, into software? That have you, have you had any experience in that sense? And do you think there is room actually to integrating them? 
or you see them as a separate things in, in, in offer? Well, I think decision-making and forecasting are very closely tied together and treating them separately is a bit of a mistake because you might end up, you know, forecasting for the wrong, you know, with the wrong loss function or the wrong purpose. So it's not something I do a lot of, but I think it is important sometimes to, to optimize your forecast for a specific, you know, the specific use case that you're that you're dealing with. And if you're interested in, for example, tail probabilities of the distribution, as you might be for electricity demand or for retail or something, then you want forecasts that do well at that problem, not necessarily do well at some other problem. So the off-the-shelf solutions ignoring the purpose can sometimes be misleading. Yeah, that's a great point. Eddie, Eric, have anything yes, to add? Yes, I think I think that 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 forecast and and and, and decision making are, are really co-integrated, and in the sense that when you are trying to to reduce the metric or the loss function of of a model, you have to have in mind what are you trying to solve in terms of 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 of, of decision making, and one of the good practices I think that I would like to see more in the in the practical side of forecasting is that trying to to choose or select the best uh, statistical metric for that specific model and you can do it simply by even creating a, 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 a plot of how a particular metric correlates with with the business output so and you can you can plot a lot of a lot of metrics and then choose the 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 metric that correlates best with with the with the problem you want to solve in the in the business side of the of the problem so I think it's really really important to consider that before even trying to model the the time series. Absolutely, Eric, you have any thoughts on that? How is that in commercial space? Yeah, I I think most commercial software packages, most of them have some context to what they'll be used for. You know, a lot of forecasting modules are part of things like supply chain execution or planning or scheduling or inventory replenishment, etc. Even beyond those general categories, a lot of times software will be, you know, it's made specifically for, you know, make to order manufacturers or to make to stock manufacturers. So that I, I, I think the level of, of integration, uh, you know, some of the tools that academics often use are, they're really a toolkit you know, R and Python, they're development languages, and you can solve any problem under the sun with them. When you get into the commercial realm, you're, you're usually more defined than that. It's not a general analysis package. It's, it's created for a specific purpose. And the modeling is a piece of it, but it's only a small piece of it. So, you know, what becomes equally important in a commercial application is what's the rest of the process outside of the modeling? You know, is this in support of a sales and operation planning? Do I need certain to integrate with databases? Do I need to be able to generate reports for management? Do I need to be able to track results? And do I need to be able to add judgment? You know, there's a lot of what you might call forecast support services that become, they really enable the users of the software to integrate something into an ongoing routine process and to in, uh, both improve accuracy in terms of the forecast themselves, but also improve efficiency of the process overall. So again, I, I'd say on the commercial side, Forecast Pro is a bit generic um, in that it can be used by a lot of different industries. 
But if you look at a lot of the forecasting software that's integrated with other solutions, you know, you're talking about a module that's embedded into something which is usually pretty specific. Nice insights. Awesome. So that you that exact that perfectly fits with the questions that I had in mind. I was going to ask, okay, so these there are some challenges in implementing, you know, software in practice, whether that is, you know, you want to implement R, Python, commercial software, whatever in practice, there are many challenges that we face with. So and, and those are some of the things that you mentioned, and you're going to integrate it with the sales and operation and see really what the purpose is and then implementing it in practice has its own challenges that requires a really support services team to be able to, and a lot of discussions. So when you think about it in terms of developing and implementing the softwares, and this is more maybe in Python, I want to ask these questions. So we have this MLOps going on, machine learning in operations, and you want to implement the actual software in practice. What are the some of the challenges that you have seen in practice for, for developing and then also implementing it. I think one one of the of the main challenges is that there is a lot of good options to to perform MLOps for 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 example. And then you have to choose the right one for for your specific a specific problem and i think that's that's really interesting because one of the of the things that i think are really good about good good software is how it integrates with with a, with, with a different stack of of of, of different uh, different packages or, or different libraries for example uh, if you want to scale your time series pipeline to forecast thousands or or millions of time series you can you can use different frameworks in python to do that you can use spark you can use task you can use ray and those frameworks allows you to to really to really scale your 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 task even if it it it, it is not about forecasting and uh, one one of the most interesting things about for example stats forecast is that stats forecast integrates with that frameworks if you have a spark data frame to 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 create to to process uh, your data in a distributed manner then you can forecast immediately with with that data frame without changing to another to another framework so i think I think that's one of the of the main challenges, but I think there are software out there that that is solving that 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 problem. Yes. Yeah, Rob, I want to also know your idea because you have a, you have consulted a lot of companies in implementing forecasting and actually developing models for the specific problems that you have been involved with. What have you seen in terms of you know the problems that companies have had in in developing and also implementing really these models in practice? I mean, there's a Difference between the sort of work I do, which is often developing tools and methods that are appropriate for the data the company have got and what actually happens after that in terms of their regular deployment of those methods. So it's pretty common for me to mock up something in R that works reasonably well, but it's slow and it's not really scalable. And then the company will take that solution and rewrite it in some in-house system, might be in Python, might be in something else, and check that the forecasts match what my R code is doing, but then they focus on the scalability of it. So they might be writing it in a lower level language like C++ that implements with their data warehouse, might be in SQL, and they might have some other stuff in Python. So there's the, the implementation of it for a company is not something I've ever had to do. 
Um, I'm more thinking about what's the best methods for this particular problem. And I'm writing essentially prototype code that sort of provides an implementation, but is never really intended to be the full, fully scaled solution. Yeah. So scaling is a big thing. And one of the thing, one of, I know one of the trends in your work has been really developing models that, that, that they work with lots of time series and also speeding up the computation. Do you have any tips on how we can speed up the computations in R, especially memory is sometimes issue with R. Do you have any tips on that, technical? Oh, well, when R gets slow, you just have to write the, that part in C++ or in some low-level language. Yeah. So the, a good example is the ETS function, which I first wrote just in native R for a consulting project, and it worked fine, but it was slow. And then we decided that we needed to make it go faster because we had you know, tens of thousands of things to forecast. So I rewrote it in C and just had an R wrapper around it. So that went pretty quick. And then, but R was calling the C and the C was call, was pushing it back to R and there was a lot of backwards and forwards going on. And that backwards and forwards was a little bit slow. And then Christoph Bergmeier, who's a you know, well-known machine learning forecaster, uh, was working with me and he said, you know, the problem here is there's too much backwards and forwards between R and C. How about I rewrite it, but we'll do all of the optimization part in C++ as well. So it's not coming back. So he was doing it in C++, not C. And so it's sort of the third iteration of this software he implemented, and it's now much, much faster than either of the previous two. And that's sort of typical process. You know, first attempt is in a high level language, but it's not really fast, but it, it's quick to develop, not quick to run. And then later, later iterations might be much, much slower to develop, but they're much faster to run. Yeah, there's an old adage in software, which is fast, accurate, inexpensive. Choose two. <laughs> <laughs> which one would I you like choose? That. <laughs> We chose accurate and inexpensive. So okay. it, it perform, performance is always an issue. But yeah, I definitely echo, you know, R and Python are, are great prototyping tools and, and to develop and, and disseminate new models and all of that. But if you're really going to throw it against a, a, a big problem, then yeah, you need to rewrite it in a, in a lower level language to, to get at that kind of speed that's required. And Eric, what is Forecast Pro written in? It's in C++. Yeah. But but you're saying that it has some slowness about it. Is that the process part or the computation part? No. What I would say, it's not so much that Forecast Pro is slow in that we have optimized it for speed. We multi-thread. We're written in C++. We've done a lot of stuff. But what we haven't done is to sacrifice the accuracy for further improvements and performance. So if you look at a lot of like the optimization that goes on, whether it's parameter optimization or model selection or something like that, you know, you can take some real shortcuts, you know, to give you the ultimate example, you know, Excel had exponential smoothing, but it didn't optimize, optimize any of the weights. So it just said, you know, use whatever values you want. Well, that's, it's really easy to make a lightning fast exponential smoothing model if you're just using set values, but you're sacrificing of, of that, you know, of that, that triad, you're, you're sacrificing the accuracy uh, in, at the altar of, of the speed. So when I forecast pro for what it's doing is quite fast. And we do work on performance in every single release and all of that. But when we're when we're confronted with a 
a decision of if we took a shortcut on how we're building these models and you know it would run a lot faster but it wouldn't be as accurate well we come down every time on the no we we have to do this thoroughly and do it accurately Lucas Bell has been a, a leader in some of the development of algorithms. So I remember back in when the M3 competition was running, all the textbooks were saying you can't automate ARIMA models, the Box Jenkins process, and 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 Forecast Pro, you know, proved that you could. They they had a BJ automatic entry in the M3 competition, which actually worked really really well. And you, know, you might be interested. That was sort of my motivation to see if I could write my own automatic ARIMA algorithm because <laughs> the textbook said you couldn't do it, but I knew that Forecast Pro had done it and done it reasonably well. <laughs> but it was a it was a commercially confidential algorithm, and I sort of knew a little bit how it worked, but I didn't couldn't see the the full description. And so I got a PhD student to see if she could develop an automatic ARIMA algorithm that was better than Forecast Pro, and we we did something that was about the same, maybe slightly better, but. I was motivated by the by the good performance of the <laughs> Yeah, it's it's in keeping with you know our mission is really to take these methods and make them accessible to a general business audience. And the automation is important. We've been doing AI approaches since the eighties. Um, you know, we we prototyped our expert selection in Prolog, which is a, a expert systems development environment that came out in the 80s. And then for performance, we had to rewrite the, the whole inference engine in C++, well, C at that time. So yeah, I mean, these these, these are kind of, you know, age-old missions here. Automate it. Yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry, the, the, the end of that story is actually involves Fetty because he, they tried to implement my auto.arima algorithm in Python and did it better. And so Fetty's implementation <laughs> of, the, of the automated ARIMA process is probably the best there is around. Yes, and, and we, we used, we used a Python library to, to speed up the, the things, which is called Numba, which allows you to, to compile the code you are reading in, in Python just in time. So each time a function is, is called and it is decorated using, using Numba, then the, the function is compiled. So in the next iterations, it, it, it becomes more, more fast. It becomes faster. So it's really, uh, it was really nice to, to see a good results with that. Yes. Yeah, that's great. I think in, in Python, R, thanks to Rob. So we have a lot of packages in forecasting and Python is catching up. But in machine learning, I mean, there is a lot of things going on. And uh, it's great to see that Betty, you've developed the auto ARIMA model in, in Python. And I think there is also room for more, many more forecasting packages coming in Python. For the last 20 years, I've got continually been asked, you know, is there a Python implementation of some function I've written in R? And there have been some, but they've been pretty poorly developed until Nixler came along and Fetty's work. And now I can just tell people, yes, there's a really good Python implementation <laughs> of almost all of the stuff that are in my forecast packages and it's in the Nixler packages. So I'm really happy to see that work take place and I'm delighted to be able to recommend it regularly. Yeah, that's great. All right, awesome. We're going to move slowly to final part of our conversation and you know, just it's more a wrap-up, and I would like to hear from each of you if you have any final thoughts, any recommendations in, in, in software developments for people who, who are keen to know more about it. So maybe we can start by Eric, if you can share your thoughts. 
So do you mean books and articles or do you mean just general recommendations? Books and articles in general. That's any materials okay. that you would, you would love to share with our audiences. Hmm. Uh, I think I'll, I'll, maybe, I'll maybe answer a question that you didn't ask instead. Okay, yes. because I think I think when it comes to commercial software, there's there's a lot of sort of assessing your needs and seeing what's out there, and mm -hmm. it's it's kind of a different a different animal than you know than, than some of these other applications. So I think I think what I would say is if you're looking into well, let me do this two ways. What is the most popular forecasting software, bar none? Every time that there's a survey on what businesses use to forecast, what's the answer? It's Excel. Okay. Excel, it comes back top, top of the class on every single survey. And Excel is a wonderful tool, and it certainly can be used for a lot of things, but it probably shouldn't be used for forecasting. It's not, it's not designed for it, and it lends itself to problems, particularly if you try to scale. So I think in terms of, you know, parting advice, let's call it, I would, I would encourage businesses to really assess what they're trying to accomplish and what their needs are, and then think about what type of tool is going to help get from A to B. And it's less about, usually it's less about reading books or learning more about, about methods. And it's more about defining what you're trying to accomplish mm -hmm. Uh, coming up with what what needs are you trying to fill, and then looking at the fit to the wide array of commercially available products that can help you do that. So, do you have? Oh, go ahead. Did you have a, a book or an article that you can point people to on how to list your requirements? Yeah, I, certainly. I don't because I'm not necessarily. I'm in the business of. Re responding to RFPs to request for proposals <laughs> and not so much to writing them. What I will say is that I suspect there is a lot of templates out there and I don't, you know, it'd be a good, it'd be a good topic for foresight. You know, how do you construct and evaluate your business needs and execute them? But it is interesting because we'll get anything from, you know, random phone calls of, you know, my boss said that we were, our forecasts aren't very accurate, and that's why I'm looking into things. To here's here's a sixty page document that completely line you know outlines what we're trying to accomplish and what what needs a need to be met. And you know it's the preparation is is definitely you know it's it's required. And so due diligence up front really will lead you to a better solution if you're if if you're looking at a wide array of available softwares. Great advice. Pedi, do you want to continue on that? Yeah, sure. I think uh, for the audience who, who wants to, to start learning time series, I think that the the, the best book to, to learn about that is the Forecasting Principles and Practice book by Professor Heinemann. And it's really, it's really <laughs> well, well written. And 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 actually, I, 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 I learned most of the things I know of time series forecasting reading that book and i i find myself even at least one one day uh, of the week uh, uh, coming back to that book to to see some 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 questions i i have so it's really it's really good so also i i strongly recommend uh, for for 
for practitioners, start with basic benchmarks because in most of the cases, like we have a problem and we want to use the more complex solutions, machine learning approach or deep learning approach. But in most of the cases, a simple solution is, is better. I don't know, for example, even a seasonal naive could be, could be a, a better option than a more uh, complicated model. And once you have your, your ben benchmark, then you can start to, to iterate with more complex model. And also, uh, I, I recommend checking out our, our documentation, the documentation of, of Nixla. We have uh, different libraries for different use cases. We have statistical models through stats forecast, machine learning models through ML forecast, deep learning models through a neural forecast. And recently, we, we are about to publish a paper about our library on hierarchical reconciliation, which uh, also takes inspiration in the work done by, by Professor Heidman in, 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 in R. And, and, and also in, on that paper, uh, we are co-authoring with, with Ayev and, and, and Shanika Wikramasuriya. So we are really, really excited about that. And also our most recent paper in, in deep learning, the, the NHIT model specialized in, in long horizon time series forecasting. I think it's, it's, it's a good, it's a good option. Yeah. Beautiful. Rob? Well, I, I can't compete with Fetty recommending the books by me and George Sanasopoulos. <laughs> so let me, let me give some recommendations on R in general. So not necessarily about forecasting, but I do think it's a good idea to get really good at one language, whether it's Python or R. And, in the open source space. And in the R world, anything written by Hadley Wickham is worth reading. He's got four books. They're all great. And if you want to get really good at it, read Hadley's books. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much. Ellen, do you have any final thoughts? And well, I, I just want to say I am in awe of all three of you. It's been a fascinating uh, podcast. So thank you. Yeah. I also really want to sincerely thank you, all of you. It, it was fantastic to discuss this topic, this software forecasting topic with you and I look forward to meeting you all in person again. Um, thanks. Um, thanks to both of you. It's been a pleasure. I've long admired the work of Eric and more recently admired the work of Fetty. So it's been a pleasure to share this panel with you. Yes. Well, we see everybody at the ISF 2023 symposium in Washington. I plan to be there. I plan to be there, there, there as well. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for taking your time and listening to Forecasting Impact. If you liked this show, please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review. We appreciate you, and we look forward to seeing you at our next episode.